You know, before I jump into questions this morning, I want to give a special shout out here today. So something exciting kind of happened here at Fellowship of Faith last week for a while. Um, well, as you know, all last year and a half, we've been live streaming. And our congregation is about 10 to 1 between those who live stream and those who gather. So any given Sunday, you could see kind of the gathering here. And any given Sunday, we have several hundred to maybe a thousand people who will, who will tune into Fellowship of Faith either in real time or, or more predominantly in recording afterwards. We've been talking to a, an internet radio site, 26.3 The Net, and we actually went live with them last Sunday. And one of the directors of the station reached out to me after the service and he goes, hey, I just want you to know this, but 250,000 people listened to Fellowship of Faith last Sunday. And and I'm like, brother, you got too many zeros on that. And he doesn't. So 26.3, the net welcome to Fellowship of Faith. If you are listening today or catching us and recording on that station, just so glad to be sharing uh, this time with you. And thank you for being a part of our church community. And if we can help you in any given way, please reach out to us here at Fellowship of Faith. I've got three texts in the booth right now, like giving me hand signs. And you know what? That's beautiful. So God bless you in that. All right. Hey, guys, we got a few check-in numbers here today. Um, let us know that you're worshiping with us. 855-465-2720. 855-465-2720. If you could just text the word here. Um, it'll just let us know that you're worshiping with us today. If you want to give via text, it's 815-201-1499. But when it comes to asking the questions today, the bottom number is what you need. 815 815- 314-0363, 815-314-0-F-O-F, any question on God, Christianity, spirituality, and its intersection with life, I can hear this dinging away already, but before I jump there, let me just play a little bit of cleanup with some of the questions I didn't get to last week. All right, here is one off the bat. What does God consider humorous? And does he ever laugh? Now, I'll tell you my knee-jerk response whenever I see this question. What does God consider humorous? You. All right? I, but, but, you know, I think there's more truth to that statement than, um, <laughs> uh, than, than maybe first meets the eye. I, I think God has deep joy Paul will describe the fruit of the Spirit, the outcropping of the Spirit of God, the very Spirit of God himself and what that manifests. And do you know what the first one on the list is? Love. Do you know what the second one on the list is? Joy. Oh, God is a God who is overflowing with joy. Whatever your stained glass windows may have led you to believe, whatever perceptions about God is harsh and stern that you may have bought into, God is a God who is filled with joy, and joy naturally equates to laughter. What is it like to spend eternity with someone who loves to laugh? What is it like to be in a relationship with someone who loves to laugh? But the Bible specifically will talk about certain things that does make God laugh. And I find these fascinating. One is this, the nations. 
Now, the nations in the Old Testament is often a moniker for those who are not part of the people of God, for those who are not part of Israel, and those who are often threatening the people of God. This is God laughs. People get afraid, but God laughs. And concomitantly with that, you can read in the Psalms and other places where it says that God laughs at the pride of the wicked. That those in this world who think themselves so high, so big, so strong, so conniving, God just laughs and goes, who do you think you are? And there's something of comfort in that, isn't it? That when we face things that are bigger than us, things that threaten us, things that are stronger than us, things that are against the way of God, and that to us we weep, but God goes, hey, (laughs) no big deal, guys. I got this. Oh, yeah, you better believe it. There are a lot of things God considers humorous and things that make him laugh. Here was another one. What is your favorite verse? And I assume you meant Bible verse. Why? And can you recite it in Hebrew? So, maybe you're like this. I actually don't have one favorite verse. It's like asking me what my favorite movie is, right? Or what's my favorite song or my favorite musical artist. I have kind of like a collection in the the top grouping and it kind of varies depending on the mood I'm in or the needs that I have or what's going on. But one that I consistently come back to again and again is 2 Kings 2.22. Now, it's actually 2 Kings 2, verse 23 to 25, but it just doesn't roll off the tongue as well. So to help me remember it, I, I say it wrong. It's 2 Kings 2, 22, and I just want to share that verse with you here today. Here it is. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. And he turned around looked at them, called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord, and then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. And as though this is an everyday occurrence, the next line is even better. And he went on his way to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. Now, if I need to explain why that's amazing, then there's no hope, all right? Absolute favorite verse. I love this verse. And I can't say the whole thing in Hebrew, but I can say the important part in Hebrew, which is what? Go on up, you bald head. No, the bears are cool. But if you can't say, go on up, you bald head, in Hebrew, then you are just letting the best in life pass you by. All right? So give me an ale. Give me a rachea. Give me an ale rachea. Ale rachea, ale rachea. Now turn to your neighbor, especially if they have no hair. And give him a good ale rachea, all right? Go on up, you bald head. It is getting close. Favorite verse in the Bible. I would call down two bears on you. If, how about this? You ever wrestle with this one? Are sins weighed based on severity? Or does God view, let's say for example, a lie as strongly is murder. Sometimes I suspect that God views a lie sometimes more severely than murder. I think we want to classify sins 
and rank them in order of severity based on the nature of the act itself. But God is often far more concerned in looking into the heart and the motivation. Sin is, uh, excuse me, lying is murder. I can't talk. Lying is sin. Murder is sin. But the severity of each might depend on factors outside of just lying and murder. It strikes me as odd that one of the most severely judged sins in the Bible is one that we take so flippantly. You know what it is? Pride. Arrogance. Which of us has not wrestled with pride in so many different ways? And to God, this is just one of the most dangerous, most insipid, one of the worst. Yes, you do get the sense in the Bible that, that God is a righteous judge and that God takes everything into context when it comes to judging sin. But let me also simultaneously caution you against trying to rate your sins against others as though, well, maybe this one isn't so bad, or maybe I can rationalize this one because God understands. Oh, God knows far more than you will ever dream. And the way that we can blind ourselves, no, God says sin is serious. Take it all seriously. Even the little ones, even the ones we think insignificant can often have the most damaging effects on others, on ourselves and on our relationship with him, all sin is poison. Don't try to figure out what the right dose of poison to take. Just flee from it. Just flee from it and keep it out of your system. You'll have a healthy, far more healthy spiritual life. Does that make sense? Hopefully that gives a little guidance in that one today. Here we go. What does the Holy Spirit actually do? Hangs in the background with like zero attention, right? We believe in one God. Christianity teaches that there's one God who's known in three persons, often called the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And sadly, the Holy Spirit seems to get the least amount of airtime of those, but you know what? I suspect he likes it that way. Because what you see Jesus continually teach about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit's main job is to point people to Christ. That the Holy Spirit is not out on the front line looking for attention, but he's the one working behind the scenes. He's the one working in people's hearts. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God manifest here in this world that works on people's lives because I'll tell you, by nature, we are corrupt. By nature, our hearts flee from God. By nature, we rebel from God. We are not neutral, as Christianity teaches it, neutral human beings. No, by nature, we're ones who reject God, resist God, and want to do it our own way. And God bombards this world with his spirit, pouring it out into the world at large and to us individually, both seeking to work on our hearts and soften them, to be receptive to God, to lead us to God, to convict us of the ways of God, to encourage us as we travel the ways of God, to strengthen us in our faith towards him. We would be so lost without the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we are worse than dead and buried. It is the very way that God works in here. And that's just a taste that's just a taste of all the things you can read about in the Bible that the Holy Spirit happens to do. Let's take a live one. 
All right. Why in the Old Testament did animals have to die to pay for the sins of people? Some context on this question is that if you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the very first chapters of the Bible, you see very early on that death was not part of God's design, that God did not intend death to be a part of his world, that death is the outcropping of sin. He comes to the man and woman who are in the garden, and he says, this is yours to enjoy. He says, be fruitful and multiply. He says, care for my creation, develop my creation, protect my creation. But he warns them against the danger of sin. He says, if you sin, you'll die. Because death is not just God arbitrarily going, I'm judging you, boom, dead. No, death is everything, the absence of God who is life himself. And so to go the way of sin is to naturally and inevitably go the way of death. And one of the hardest and saddest things about sin is that those who aren't guilty of a specific thing often have to pay the price and consequence of what another does. That's why God warned people against it. This has an effect, and it has an effect far beyond you. I think it should be a strong warning to any of us about how seriously to take sin because it's not just something affecting you. Others have to pay the price and consequence for your foolishness sometimes, your stubbornness. Think of the times that you've had to pay the price, the inevitable consequence of what someone else has done that you had no part of. Stinks, doesn't it? Imagine what it's like for the animal kingdom having to suffer and die. How about this? Is it wrong for a Christian couple to not have children? Interesting question, and I'm so glad you asked it. And the short answer is no. No, it's not. And if you need a model, I'll give you Jesus himself, who never married and who never had kids. Now, as soon as I say that, though, I want to say something else to balance it. Because in this day and age, especially with the easy access to birth control that we have and the freedom that it's given, many don't see children as a gift anymore. And it strikes me as fascinating that the first command of the Bible is this, have a lot of sex and a lot of kids. By the way, do you ever want to climb into the mind of God? God commands you to have a lot of sex. Now, if you're not married yet, not yet, all right? This is a God of laughter and joy, all right? The first command to Adam and Eve is be fruitful and multiply. But let's get out of the way of the churchy language. We all know what be fruitful means, right? The Bible always portrays children as a gift, a blessing, not a curse, not an inconvenience, not something that gets in the way. And I think too many of us, too many of us who are married and who are able to have kids have shirked that blessing a little bit more. I've had the gift of knowing some very large families. I've got a brother who has seven kids, another brother with five. And let me tell you, the house gets crowded. There's chaos. There's things they can't do. 
But the joy that they experience together? No, it's not a sin to not have kids. But I also encourage you to check your motives and what you might be giving up that God may want to bless you with. Just talking at a 20,000-foot view. Let's back clean up. So here was a package of questions that came in, three separate questions from three separate people, but all on a similar theme. Why does God let good people get sick with terminal illnesses? Why does God make good people do bad things? And why do bad things happen to good people? And what makes a person good? It's all kind of swirling around the same package here, isn't it? And come on, which of us hasn't struggled with this in some kind of way? The Bible doesn't give just one specific answer to this. It gives several, and they're they're congruent. But what it means is that you can't always give one answer to answer all kinds of situations. But let me give you Jesus' perspective on this and paint just one angle by which we can go in. Why does God let good people get sick with terminal illness? It's more of a philosophical question, but it comes down to this. Because it seems that in the mind of God, he values freedom more than safety. God is a God who will allow people to do stupid things, who will allow people to sin, allow people to get hurt, allow people to face its consequences. God is a God who will allow a 13-year-old girl to get pregnant rather than making sure that that could never happen. God is a God who will allow someone to commit suicide instead of coming down and making sure that that could never happen. God is a God who allows nations to go to war, people to be filled with pride, people to do, to lie or to murder. God wants a relationship with people who want to have a relationship with him. People who are free doesn't want to control you. He could. He's got the power And forgive me if this phrase I'm going to use comes oversensitive to maybe some of you who have had to suffer from something like this, but a way that I've heard it put once is this, that God is not a cosmic rapist. God will not force himself upon you even though he can overpower you. No, God respects you too much and respects the dignity of who you are as a person too much, but the sad truth of that is it means sin and the consequences of it like sickness and death and decay become a part of our world as a result. Why does God make good people do bad things? He doesn't. He doesn't. Hopefully I just answered that and never get caught into the trap of thinking that God is making someone do something bad. If you think God is making you do something bad, you're listening to the wrong voice. And why do bad things happen to good people? I love how Jesus puts this. Good teacher, they ask him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know what Jesus' answer is? Why are you calling me good? There's no one good but God. I think we're a little inflated in our goodness. Certainly there are bad things that happen to people that don't deserve it. People who are quote-unquote innocent in a given situation. But by nature, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us 
deserve nothing from God. Sickness and punishment and death. God doesn't want to do that. And the entire story of the Bible and the entire mission of Jesus is seeking to save people from that way of death to a way of life. What makes someone good? Do you remember the Holy Spirit question? His work in your life. God alone. All right, let's take another life. Is everything part of God's plan? No. No, I don't think so. God knows everything that will happen. God knows all contingencies. God is, in Christian theology, omniscient, which means all-knowing. But that does not mean he wants everything to happen that happens. God knows the flow charts. You know what I mean? God did not want Adam and Eve to fall into sin. He didn't want this person to lie. He didn't want this person to do that. He allows it to happen. But I would not call that part of his plan. We have got to get to the place where we stop blaming other people for what we're doing and start looking in ourselves and facing our own culpability. Because what the heart of Christianity is about is not rationalizing our behavior, not trying to prove that we're good enough, but coming face to face and stark honestly with just how sinful and corrupt we are and how desperately we need God to save us from it as a result. All right, cleanup time. Any church advice for recovering from a breakup? Yeah, a lot of ice cream. I don't know if you've been seeing your boyfriend for three months. I don't know if it's someone that you've been in a deeper relationship, maybe sleeping with or living with for years. I don't know if it's a spouse. A lot of these will determine specifics, but maybe I can just encourage you. Be patient with yourself. That whatever you're feeling, it's okay. Allow yourself to process what you need to process. Seek God in the middle of it. He's there for you, even if this person isn't. And learn to seek your identity in God rather than other people. Because so often we're so guilty of letting other people define who we are and thinking that we can't live without them. To think of what life would be like should my wife leave me or die or something like that, I'd be rocked to the core. And I'm sure it would be the same for her. I don't know your situation. But I know this, that for her and for me, our identity transcends our relationship together. And God wants that with you as well. Find strength in that, hope in that. In a way through the tears or anger or frustration or whatever it might be as well. Here was another. Will you be teaching on prophecy in current world events? You know, actually, it's fascinating. We're doing that at the 9 o'clock Bible study. Um, come on out to it. Check it out. It might be right up your alley. All right, so we have two most synod churches, Missouri Synod Churches and McHenry. One is heavily liturgical in the Missouri Synod Lutheran style, and that's Zion up on 120. And there is FOF in the heavy progressive worship genre. 
How about getting together with Mark Buto? He's the lead pastor over there at Zion for an, 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 an amalgam service, say maybe once every three to six months. Split the offerings or find a common charity to donate, new life, abortion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's a great idea. Believe it or not, we actually used to do this with Zion. Um, we used to get together once a year on what's called Reformation Day, Halloween, October 31st, in celebration of, of the beginning of the Protestant movement. And the way that we would work it is this. George Borghart was there with Mark Buto at the time. George has since moved on. But one year, they would come to Fellowship of Faith, and we would do worship our style and they would preach. And the next year, we would go to Zion, and we would worship high liturgical style, and I would preach. And it was cool, we did this for a number of years, and we bet back and forth and played the ping pong game. And you know what? As pastors, we kind of were digging it. We just kind of found with the congregations that lost steam. Because in the spirit of honesty, at the end of the day, what sounds like a good idea in passing often doesn't hold traction over time, but hey, I'm with you. You want to do it again? Make it happen and get 50 people to commit to it. Because I'm not just showing up for the three of us. Let's go have a Bible study over coffee. You know what I'm saying? Make it happen. Let's get 50 people to commit to it, minimum. We'll see if Mark's interested. That'd be really cool to kind of do again. Yeah. Thanks for asking. All right. It feels like anxiety and mental excuse me, mental health govern my life. I've been told by some that I just need to trust God. How do I reconcile my inability to move past anxiety and worry with my faith in God? Let me tell you, you're not alone in this. So many people struggle here. And those who don't struggle in the same way, they don't get it. Because they don't experience, they don't feel what it's like and they see you suffering, and they want to do something to help, but they don't know how. So, so maybe be patient with them just a little bit. I'm one that struggled with anxiety for most, if not all, of my life. At certain seasons in very deep and abiding ways where I felt as though anxiety and mental health governed my life. And God bless my mom. She's one of the greatest role models to me and was there with me through, through all of life and is today, but she didn't get it. And she would just go, Dave, just stop worrying. Oh, okay, mom. You know, I didn't think of that one. As though it's a light switch you just shut off. It's like going to someone who struggles with depression and go, well, just don't be sad anymore. You know what it's like? It's like going to a paralyzed man and saying, just get up and walk. Now, Jesus can pull that off. I can't. Those of you who are watching someone struggle with this, it isn't as easy as just throwing a light switch, even though your advice is true. We wish we could. Be patient with them instead and try to put yourself in their shoes. But look, let me tell you this. Your depression, your anxiety, whatever your struggle might be, it may be, in fact, fueled in part by struggles or weaknesses in your faith life. I don't dismiss that entirely. We're holistic human beings. But it is not a sign that you don't have faith or that your faith is weak. Some of the most anxiety-ridden people and depressive people I know are some of the people with the strongest, most deepest abiding faith in God. 
And what you do in those times is you run to God. You pray, God, take this away. But sometimes he says, my grace is sufficient for you and my power will be made perfect in your weakness. And sometimes, God, rather than take the anxiety or depression away, will instead meet you in the middle of it and walk alongside of you in the middle of it. Every suffering step of the way, that's how you reconcile your anxiety or your mental health with your faith in God. All right. What does the mark of the beast look like? Revelation, highly symbolic book filled with imagery and just symbolism. We'll talk about this beast that will come up out of the sea and one out of the land. It's all part of this. You know, you've seen enough like B-rated apocalyptic end time movies to know what I'm talking about, right? But Revelation will talk about this thing called the mark of the beast. And of course, those who don't call in the name of Jesus will be marked with the mark of the beast. All right? You know, I know what the mark of the beast is. It's your nose. All right? So if you've got a nose, you got the mark. Done. I don't know. I don't know. I think maybe the biggest advice I can give you is this. Don't read it so literally. I think that this mark of the beast is not trying to give a warning to you about some specific sign, some specific thing. You know, people said it was like social security numbers once upon a time. Today, they're saying it's going to be a microchip implant. Uh, you know, Gorbachev, apparently back in the 80s, had the mark of the beast because he had the big scar and he was the evil Soviet empire. You know, the, the look of the mark of the beast changes with every generation. And you know what's the one constant truth? They're all wrong. They're always proven wrong. Get what John is trying to tell you through the symbolism of this mark. Rather than looking for some end times thing to happen where someone's got some like, tattooed like Mike Tyson thing happening on their face. You know what I'm saying? So maybe that's the way to go. Okay, um, let me take this one. Okay, came in twice, but same thing. First, you said, hello, hello. Second, if we don't feel our mortal emotions or sadness slash getting mad, then what's the point of, the right, of this right now and what's the point of heaven if we don't feel them? I'm, uh, give me a second. I'm not really sure what you're saying here. I'm going to read it again. If we don't feel our mortal emotions, in quotes, or sadness slash getting mad, then what's the point of this right now? And what's the point of heaven if we don't feel them? I got to tell you, usually I could do a pretty good job of like navigating this. And maybe I'm like missing it here because I'm a little tired this morning, but I have no idea what you're asking me. Um, can anyone clarify? I'm not asking you to out yourself, but no. Try texting it again. Try texting it again with a little bit more clarity. And let's see where that takes us, because I don't want to do injustice to, I think, what is a very serious and sincere question that you're asking. So let's go here instead. Is having premarital sex going to ruin your marriage in the future so much so that you should not get married? There's actually two questions here embedded, right? Let's take them in parts. Is having premarital sex going to ruin your marriage? God invented sex, and he called it good. 
called it as part of something very good. And I already talked to you about it being the first command and how God designed procreation to be something that's filled with passion and joy and intimacy. But because it is so powerful, he also puts up laws or commands to guard it so we don't mess this priceless, sacred, wonderful gift of God up. Because you know what? We do a really good job of, of taking the wonderful, priceless, sacred gifts of God and messing them up. And so, sex is meant to be celebrated in the context of marriage. Not before. Not outside of. Is the joining together in joy and, and, and passion of two people's bodies, but also their souls. As the Bible will put it, becoming one with each other, and there's something amazing there. And to have sex with someone who's not your spouse, well, that violates that. It hurts that. Having sex before marriage is outside of God's plan for that and can as well. Now, is it going to ruin your marriage? That's pretty extreme. Can it? Yeah. Will it? Maybe. Is smoking going to give you lung cancer? Can it? Yeah. Will it? Maybe. So don't go there. And I know what I'm asking you. We've all been there. Any of us have had puberty, we all know <laughs> what it's like. Especially when you meet someone that just, oh, you know? God has a high calling. And make no mistake, it can be hard. But trust him that it's good, even when it goes counter to every desire. Honor the person you're in relationship with and honor God by saving it and not bringing anything in that might taint what God wants you to enjoy to the fullest. Now, if you're having sex now, does that mean you shouldn't get married? No, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. It's not like God has given up on you, that God says you're no longer able to be married, that God says, no, you can't do that anymore, that God has put you on it. No, nothing like that. Seek God in repentance. Ask for forgiveness. Say, Lord, I know I haven't been doing it your way. I'm going to do it your way now. And you may fail, and you're certainly going to struggle. But then again and again, Lord, I'm going to do it your way. And likewise, don't marry someone just because you're having sex with them. That might not be the right thing. All right? But seek God in that and go, Lord, if you do want me to be married, and if this is a good thing and I want to be married, help me to navigate that. Hopefully, that gives a little bit of guidance. All right, I'm watching the clock here. And I'm out of time. This blew up. And I got to like, what, a quarter of the questions from last week? But we got next week ahead. And just like we did this week, I'll open live texting again and try to back clean up on some of the ones you've asked. Hopefully this has been helpful to you. Hopefully we'll be able to give you insights into various teachings of the way of God and the beliefs of Christianity hopefully more so that it struck a chord, invited you in to maybe explore more deeply. And above all, let me encourage you in this. Keep asking questions. God wants you asking questions. He wants you taking him seriously and wrestling with him in the stuff that's important. And that means opening the dialogue. And please know that we are happy to do that here.